Good afternoon, New Life. Um, I am really excited to be in front of you again. Um, for those of you who may not know me yet, um, I am Sharon Swift. I am the new assistant pastor as part of the Community Life team. Tomorrow actually marks my third month uh, here in that position, so <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> I've really enjoyed being here um, with you all and uh, serving you and getting to know your stories. And um, just so you understand, I oversee things like baptism. So if any of you are interested or have questions about baptism, um, I'm your go-to person. I'm more than happy to make time to sit down with you and talk about baptism. Um, I help oversee Alpha, um, as well as some other things like membership classes, things like that. So we'll be seeing each other more and more. Uh, and I look forward to getting to know you all better and better as the, the weeks and the months go on. Um, I also want to, in case you haven't met them, I want to show you my family, introduce my family to you. Um, this is uh, actually a picture taken at my graduation um, with my, at seminary from my MDiv program. And um, standing next to me is my husband, Andrew. We've been married 16 years now. And... <laughs> And then to the far left is um, Tilly, my older daughter, who's 15, and in the middle there is Abby, um, my younger daughter. She's nearly 14. She's getting there, a couple more months. So, um, so that's us, and we've really enjoyed making this transition to new life. We're really feeling connected and like we fit here. Um, but I want to uh, have a chance today to share more of my story with you and who I am and um, how God has brought me here, not just to be a pastor, but to be a Christian. Um, so that's going to kind of be where we go today. I want you to understand this message today, that you are not forgotten. If you walk away with nothing else today after I'm done speaking, I hope that you walk away with the message that you are not forgotten. And today, we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 13 through 16. Um, I'm going to have it up on the screen, but if you would like to have a Bible in front of you, you can just raise your hand slightly and the ushers will make sure that you get a Bible. Um, but the word will be on the screen as well. Isaiah 49, 13 through 16. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Let me take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit, which is here in our midst at work. Thank you that you are here, that there is no face in this room that you don't know, that you don't recognize. There's no name 
in this room that you don't know. There's no person here whose life has gone unseen by you. You see it all. You see our mountaintops and you see our valleys. Be with us today, God. Let your Holy Spirit, may your Holy Spirit be at work in us as we receive your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I wanna tell you a little bit about myself and how I, um, the reason the scripture has some meaning to me. Um, Before, when I was growing up in, in my household, I was raised not as a Christian. I was raised as an atheist. Uh, my father grew up as a Christian, was raised a Christian, grew up in church, um, and there's a history of Christianity in that part of India going back 2,000 years. But he chose to live outside of the church and to raise us outside of the church when he came to the U.S. And so my brother and I uh, never really went to church. Occasionally we'd go maybe out of some family obligation or you know, I don't even know why sometimes every once in a while we'd pop up in there, but we basically were not in church. And in fact, um, my dad went as far, because he understood Christianity, he grew up in church, he went as far as to kind of inoculate us from other Christians. So he would tell us that if you encounter a Christian, um, or if you find yourself for some reason in prayer or in church, um, make sure you just tell the Christians that you are a Christian, that you do believe, because then they'll leave you alone. Uh, and he, he, uh, he really inoculated us so that we wouldn't be subjected to evangelism, that we could just be apart from that. Um, and so uh, that's what we tried to do at times. But honestly, I was a little curious about religion, but I was more than happy to embrace atheism. I... I uh, was the kind of person that when I said the Pledge of Allegiance, I didn't say under God. I mean, I really was happy to live as consistently as I could with, this, with atheism. I wanted that to really be um, consistent in my life, that it was about what I could do, what I could see, what I could um, experience, what I could sense, what I could measure. That's what life was. Um, but there was a, partly a reason that that was so ingrained in me. And it wasn't just that my father taught me that way, it was also the evidence that I could see in my life, which is that um, was one of pain and suffering. My father um, was an alcoholic, and he had some mental illness issues, and I believe that part of that was he was self-medicating with alcohol, but he drank a lot. And over the years, it got worse and worse. And he was violent when he did drink. And so my mother bore the brunt of that violence and that abuse. It was incredibly painful. Life at home was basically hell. I never knew what my dad was gonna be like if he was drinking when I came home, uh, or would he be sober? Would he be asleep or awake? Would he be happy kind of drunk or belligerent and violent? Would he be both oscillating between the two like within a matter of of minutes? I just never knew what life was going to be like. And my role in that household ended up being one of trying to keep the peace, trying to de-escalate my dad, trying to keep him happy, trying to uh, intervene when he would start hitting my mother, to try to stop him from hitting her, to try to stop him from breaking things and throwing things at her and, and, um, and just being um, incredibly violent toward both of us at times. And so it was a horrible way to live. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. 
I really wouldn't. I would sometimes spend all night trying to keep him calm, trying to keep him from being destructive, and then have to get up a couple hours later to go to school and pretend everything was fine. And I kept that secret for years, for years. And I tried hard. I poured myself into my schoolwork because I thought, well, this is something I can control. And this will open up doors for me in the future. If I can do this, then maybe I can get into college and I can support my mother. I can pull her out of this situation. I mean, I had all kinds of plans and I was trying to figure out uh, a way forward, but it was painful. It was incredibly painful. And to watch my mother suffer and be beaten was excruciating. Well, things only got worse, unfortunately. The violence kept escalating, his drinking kept escalating, and a lot of things started to take place. Um, and then at the end of my junior year of high school, it hit kind of its peak. And it was like that summer between my junior year and before my senior year of high school that the violence broke out again, and my father beat my mother, and he ended up beating her to death. And she died. And to say it was devastating is an understatement. It was, I was gutted. I, there aren't words to describe what it felt like. I felt like I lost everything. All my plans had disintegrated before my eyes. They were all meaningless now. They had no point. My father was arrested later that day, and he has not been released since. He stayed there for the duration of his trial and after he was found guilty and has been there ever since. And suddenly my brother and I were on our own, and we had to figure out our way and pick up the pieces. He ended up going to um, move on to campus and try to complete his college education and I was trying to finish high school. Now, at the time, I had this really, really good friend, a best friend. Um, the funny thing was, she was a Christian. Um, and so, I was always trying to get her to pull away from her faith, because I knew what life was really like. I was living in a nightmare, and I thought if she knew she, if, if I could just help her to wake up and see that life isn't this pretty, happy thing for everyone, she would know the truth, that God wasn't real. I couldn't tell her, though, what was going on. I didn't tell anyone. I kept it a secret. So she had no idea what was going on. But it was like my mission to wake her up to the truth, that God wasn't real, that there's suffering, that God isn't good. And so I was always, you know trying to get her to break the rules and get her to do all kinds of things that were not the best things. Um, and I was causing a lot of chaos in her household. I kept her out past curfew a lot. I would always be, you know, we'd start going one place and end up another, and her parents didn't know where she was. It was bad. It was, I was causing a lot of trouble in that household. But I wished that she would wake up from the dream that there was a God and that she could know that life was really just terrible and you had to kind of make the best of it. Well, when this happened, she was in Seattle. And the reason is because her parents wanted to put as much distance between us as possible because I was a really bad influence. And so they sent her to work in a camp in Seattle. Uh, and I was here in New York um, for the summer and uh, so that she could be, get some distance from me and she could 
maybe get back into exploring her faith again. Uh, honestly, as a parent now, I get it. Uh, <laughs> I, I get it, I get it, it was wise. Um, but of course, this all unfolded while she was there and I didn't have my best friend. And so I called her the night that everything happened and I had to tell her the horrible news. I mean, I was so ashamed and I was so, I didn't want people to know, but I had no choice. At this point, all my secrets were on the network news at night. It was in the paper, pictures that had been taken of me because I had done, participated in some honors program at the high school were now used in these articles about my father and mother and my face was plastered everywhere. It was just terrible. I hated it. And so I had to call her and tell her. She was the first person I called and she wept with me on the phone and I don't even know why I said this, but I asked her to pray for me. I think I just thought, well, that's, I guess what you ask Christians to do, you know, pray. So I asked that, even though I didn't believe that prayer could do anything for me. But I guess I felt like, why not? But she uh, that night called her parents and her parents um, were shocked not totally shocked. I think they had a suspicion that there was something unusual about my home life, but they didn't know what. They couldn't, they didn't know it was what it was. And so the weeks passed by and the funeral happened. There was a lot of press. There continued to be a lot of press all summer. But after the funeral, the calls died down. The fruit baskets stopped coming. The flowers stopped coming. The cards stopped coming in the mail. And the only people besides my family who, thank God for them, they were very supportive and, and helping me in the best way they knew how, the only people that stuck it out through the cleaning out the house and helping me with the estate and figuring out how I was going to live next were these two people, my friend's parents. They were there helping me do some of the dirty work, cleaning out the house, hiring a dumpster, figuring out all kinds of practical things. And so the end of the summer came. And it was time for me to make a decision about what I was gonna do for my senior year. Now, my uncle offered for me to live with him, and it was a generous offer. I mean, he would have done he would have done that for me easily. But the problem was he lived in a different school district than the one that I had been going to. And it was my last year of high school. And if you think about it, like I'd lost my family, I'd lost my home, I'd lost basically everything except my friends. And so I didn't want to give that up. This family, my friend's family, approached me. Her mom actually came to me and said, offered for me to live with them. Now, I, I was amazed. I couldn't believe that they were offering this, but it seemed like a dream because here was this stable family. You know, honestly, they reminded me of like the Flanders from The Simpsons, you know? They were all like happy, oakley-doakley, you know? And I was like, okay, like, yeah, I mean... Why not? They have a stable house. Like, anything is better than what I was living through. Um, so, so I was, like, thinking this. And I get to live with my best friend. Like, hi, half the bad stuff I was doing was so I could hang out with her. Now I'll just be in the house with her. It'll be great. We'll be, get, we'll be together all the time. It seemed great. But the one thing I said to her was, because the training that my dad gave me was still in my head, I said, you can't do this to convert me. That's the one thing. You can't do this because you want me to be a Christian and you're gonna just have me 24-7 to evangelize to. I can't do that. 
I am not a Christian. I am never going to be a Christian. And I need you to accept that about me, that I'm coming as I am, and you're not doing this to get some kind of result out of me. And they agreed. They were fine with that. They said, that's not what this is. But you also have to understand that we are Christians. And so we do read the scripture sometimes at the dinner table. We do pray as a family. And those things are not aimed at you. They're just things that we do. And so um, if you can accept that they're not targeted at you and you allow us to do those things, then that's, we're okay with the fact that you're not a Christian. You just have to follow our rules. And I thought, okay, I can do that. If it's not targeted at me, if there's not these like little passive aggressive prayers about me, I'm okay, you know? So this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, okay. So I finally moved in with them. It was the end of August. Um, so all this happened 22 years ago, actually. Yesterday was the anniversary of my mom's passing, 22 years. So this is uh, kind of fresh off of remembering all this. Um, but at the end of August, I moved in with them. And I, you know, I was still burning with a question. And I just, when I sat down with my friend's mom at the end of the day, and we were just sort of um, taking a moment of rest before we went to bed, I just, I asked her the question that so many people have asked before me, and I'm sure many people will ask after me, which is, if God is good, why did this happen to me? I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not, definitely not the worst person. I haven't done anything exceptionally wrong. This situation was not one of my creating. Why did this happen to me? If God is good, I mean, how can you say that to someone like me, that God is good? And so she started to explain to me, um, she gave me an answer that sort of opened up some of my understanding. The first thing she said was that Christians don't always have an exact answer to that. We don't always know why things happen the way they happen. What we do is we see life as sort of a, a tapestry. And instead of being on the front side viewing it properly, we're kind of behind it. And what we do is we see the blobs of color, we see um, knots and threads going here and there, and we're being told it's a work of art. In fact, it's a masterpiece. But it doesn't look like much. We can't discern everything in it. We see the chunks of color. We see kind of shapes, but we can't make out any details. We don't know what we're really looking at. But we keep being told it's a work of art. And she said that at one point in our lives, whether it's when we pass on and we're with Jesus or Jesus comes back, we're going to see the other side of that tapestry. And we're going to see it fully. And we're going to understand oh, that big blob of orange was this. It was this shape. And this thread that goes here connects because it's part of this part of the art. We're going to see the full picture and know how everything worked together, and we will see that it's a masterpiece. It's just right now we can't. And I heard that, and I thought, okay, that makes some sense. It still seemed really abstract. And then she went on to give an example. She said, well, let me give you an example so you can understand this better. And so she started to unpack it by telling me a story, something that I was familiar with. Because remember, I was best friends with their, her daughter. So they had found this house. It was like the perfect house. They were renting the home they were in now, the one that I was living in with them. But they wanted to own something. And we all know how hard it is to find housing 
in New York, like anywhere, let rent, let alone buy something. So they had a very small price range. They were trying to find something they had been looking for a long time, and nothing was popping up. And they finally found this one house. It was the perfect price range, the perfect size in the neighborhood they wanted. They were ecstatic. I remember my friend was so excited. She already knew what room she was going to have. She was making plans in her head, you know, how to decorate it, how to arrange the furniture. And then they went to go get the inspection, and there was a huge crack in the foundation. And it could be repaired, but obviously it affected the value of the house. So they went back to the owners and tried to negotiate and said, you know, you have to bring down the value of the house so that we can get this foundational crack repaired. We can't live in a house that has a faulty foundation. But the owners would not budge a dollar, not at all. They were in total denial that there was any trouble with the house. And so the deal fell through. And they were so unhappy and sad. You know, they were just, they were just, they couldn't understand. And she said this, her daughters came to her and said, why would God show us the perfect house? We prayed for this house. And he finally, we found the perfect house. Why would he show us this perfect house and then not let us have it? And she said, you know, we couldn't understand at all why he would do that. But now, she said, we understand at least one reason why. I thought, oh, what's that? And she responded, well, oh, this gets me every time. She responded, that house was small. God knew you were coming, and that house didn't have enough bedrooms in it. And God knew you needed a place, and you needed your own room to grieve and to process what's happened, and that house wouldn't have had that kind of room for you. And now that we know that God was sending you, we're okay with the fact that we didn't get that house. Because now what God wanted, we, we want just as well. God knew better, and we're glad that God knew better. I was shocked. I couldn't, I was speechless. I don't even know if I said anything, honestly. Because I knew that this family, especially this mother, had every reason to hate my guts, frankly. Like, they had every reason to think this girl is nothing but trouble. And you want, God, you want us to move her into our house to corrupt our daughter, like, 24-7? I mean, they had every reason to despise me, to want me as far away as possible. And yet, they were saying that God wanted this thing, and so they knew they wanted me. They knew that they were willing to miss out on something they wanted so badly, which was this perfect house of their own. Instead, they wanted what God wanted, which was a place for me. I knew I was not deserving of that kind of grace or that kind of mercy. I knew. I knew of all people, these folks should not care. And I knew I had seen the worst of humanity at this point. I had seen... I've seen some terrible, terrible things and endured some awful things. And I knew that this wasn't a human thing, that what they were doing was something that was more than what a person could do. And I suddenly had to know, you know, I had heard about Jesus before. I had heard people speak about, pray about Jesus and what he could do, but I needed to know what they knew about Jesus. I needed to know what they knew, the Jesus that they knew because I had never encountered anything like this, grace like that. And it made me so curious, 
because I knew it wasn't a human love that was coming for me. And so I started to do uh, what I think I called at the time research. I started going to church, <laughs> and I was researching. I was, uh, that was the guise I, I uh, gave myself as an atheist. I was exploring. What, what did they know about God? What did they know about Jesus? Because it wasn't any Jesus I had been familiar with before. And I didn't last very long. Uh, <laughs> I think I was in the research phase for about two and a half months, um, and I... I gave my life to the Lord in November, November 14th, 20, no, 1997, <laughs> 22 years ago, amen? <sighs> I had a lot of questions that I had to get answered, and I got the core ones answered. I think we all will have questions for the rest of our lives until we, we are face-to-face with him, but in the meantime, I had enough answers that I felt like I could give my life to Jesus. And I found myself as a young Christian in this scripture, in Isaiah. Now, I don't know how I ended up in Isaiah. I really probably should not have been reading the Old Testament. I knew nothing about the Bible. Like, I don't even know how I ended up here. But uh, somehow I encountered this scripture that I shared with you earlier. And I just, it just sustained me in some very dark times. And I wanna walk you through why and the power in this scripture, and why it speaks so much to those of us who are in pain. See, in, when this scripture is happening, in this section of Isaiah, Israel is in exile. So what does that mean? They are a conquered people. They have been conquered in war by the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, another word for them, and they were, uh, taken from their land and forcibly brought into Assyria. Um, They were an oppressed people. Not only were they conquered, not only were they subjugated by the Assyrians, but they saw their home, their nation, their city of Jerusalem decimated, leveled, destroyed, burned down. Nothing was left. I mean, the Assyrians were brutal. I mean, they slaughtered all the animals and destroyed every building. Now, We might understand in some way that pain, but it's more than just losing the buildings. It's also the fact that they uh, lost their temple. So for us nowadays, when we're here at church, um, even if we lost this building, like we can worship anywhere, right? We worshiped somewhere, New Life worshiped somewhere before this building was, uh, before we used this building. And God forbid if something happened to this building, we would worship somewhere else. Um, if anything, this building is proof that uh, you can worship anywhere, right? Uh, so there's no reason that it has to be a special building built just for God, right? Um, there are churches all over. So it's easy to imagine worshiping anywhere. But that wasn't the case for them. This was before Jesus came. This is in the Old Testament. This is when they still had a physical temple. And the temple was an important part and center of worship. Everyone worshiped at the same temple, the whole nation. So it wasn't the same as like, you know, we could just locate to another building. When they lost the temple, not only lost it, but saw it destroyed, not even a stone on top of another stone left, it was devastating to them because it was a, it was a sign that God was not with them anymore, that there, there was no place, there was no more holy of holies where God's presence could dwell. 
his manifest presence could be. We take for granted that he, we have access to him now, but it wasn't as clear cut back then. And so I tried, to, I tried to think of what else it could be compared to. And the, the only thing I could think of in recent history is 9-11. I mean, how painful is it to watch that video of the towers collapsing? To think of the fact that this iconic set of buildings is gone. I mean, it was a symbol of New York. It was part of a, a huge part of our skyline, one of the most uh, distinct pieces of our skyline besides like the Empire State Building or the Chrysler Building. I mean, iconic. And it was a financial center. When we saw it crumble, it was traumatic. I mean, I know I was traumatized. I felt vulnerable and unsafe in a way that I had never felt before. And it felt like, it felt really painful as a New Yorker to see it, to see, to drive and be in and out of the city and see the smoke uh, for days and days afterward. It was traumatic to see that. And that was a building that didn't have the kind of significance the temple would have had where the manifest presence of God was, where all the worship for our whole community would take place. I can't imagine how painful that was for them to lose that. So they were disoriented. Now they're in this foreign land. They don't have their uh, temple to worship at. They don't know, uh, they don't have a location where the presence of God is literally housed and dwells. So now how are they going to relate to God? And so God is saying in chapter 49, I will not leave you in Assyria as conquered people. I will bring you out. I will restore you. I will help you rebuild your city, rebuild Jerusalem. But, and he's saying that here in verse 13, the Lord comforts his people, will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But the truth of the matter is in their pain and isolation, they can't feel that. They can't see it. They are in so much pain. They are so disoriented. They don't know how to worship in this foreign land. And they're saying, Zion is Israel. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And I can understand that feeling. And I I suspect I'm not the only one in this room who can feel that feeling. That if God could see me and the pain I'm in now, if he could see what I was going through, if he could actually see my tears, he would never leave me like this. If he loved me, he would never just let me languish here in pain. He must not see me. He must have forgotten me. I must be out of his view, or maybe I'm just too insignificant. There's more powerful people, more uh, um, uh, maybe significant people. Maybe I'm just not significant enough for God to care. But that's so far from the truth. We can get lost in that pain, but the truth of the matter is, that God cannot forget us. He can't forget his children. Even if others forget, God cannot forget. He is not able to forget. See, in verse 15, he brings up this image of a mother. And I think that the reason he does that is because a mother's love is sort of an iconic love. When we think about, for example, uh, major events like the Olympics or something, when uh, uh, someone runs across the finish line, they get the gold, what do they do? They pan the crowd and they stop on the mom, you know, and she's cheering. What are all those commercials about? Half of them are about the mom of these athletes, you know, washing the uniforms and minivanning to practice and, you know, because a mother's love is iconic, right? 
All of us know that there's this idea of self-sacrificial love and, and care. And um, that's what God is pulling on here. But I know that not all of our experiences are like that. Not all of us share that experience of motherhood. It should be like that. And that's what this verse is saying. Because a woman's body is really wired to, to nurture new life. First of all, to, to create it in the womb and then to nurture it and nurse it all through its young life. But the reality is we know that that's not true always. There are people in this room who lost your mothers young, younger than I did. There are some of you who never knew your mothers. Maybe there are some of you who wish you never knew your mothers because the pain that they have inflicted, the, the vacuum of that kind of unconditional, sacrificial love that you see others get. Some of you have had to endure uh, a mother who uh, couldn't love you the way that maybe you needed or the way they should have. And that, this verse even speaks to that, that vacuum that's created when we don't have that love. That's the, that's the thing about an iconic love is that when we don't have it, when it's absent, we feel the effects, that we can't escape it. We see at every milestone that love that we wish we had or that should have been there. I feel it at every milestone. And I had my mother at least for a time in a, in a way, not maybe the way I would have liked. Um, she was always trying to keep things together. And, uh, but, I at least had her, some of us didn't. And that pain and that absence of that love has spoken to us and informed a lot of what we have done and what we have experienced and how we've experienced it. But God is saying here that even if a mother forgets, even if your parent forgets, even if they fail, God cannot. He cannot forget. He is not able to forget you. In fact, he talks about in verse 16, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. There was a practice back then with uh, slaves and masters. They couldn't tattoo because that wasn't allowed in the law, but they could engrave or or scratch the name of the master into their hands so that they knew who they belonged to, that they were a slave, they were an indentured servant to somebody. That was a practice back then. So he's saying, my hands have your name on them. I can't do anything with these hands without thinking of you, without seeing your name, without you crossing my mind. I don't act. God is saying, I don't act except that your name is in front of me, that I know that I'm thinking of you. And he says, your walls are ever before me. He, in this context, is talking about Jerusalem, that Jerusalem's walls are ever before him, that he's not going to forget this city and forget, leave it in ruins as it is. But he's saying the same thing to us today that he said to Israel, that just like Jerusalem, that Israel is never out of his sight, you too are never out of his sight. There's nothing he can do where he doesn't see you. There's nowhere you can go where he can't see you. There's no time that God acts when he's not thinking of you, when your name doesn't cross his mind. There's no time when you've shed tears that he didn't witness it and wasn't grieved with you. There's no time that you were out of his view and away from his sight. You are not forgotten. In fact, you are unforgettable. I want to say that again because there are some of you that need to
to hear that today. You are unforgettable. The God of all creation says that you are unforgettable. He can never forget you. You are always in front of him when he acts and when he looks around the world. And so I want to say to you today, you might think that you have made too many mistakes, that there are too many bad things that have happened, that you can't undo some of the things that have happened in your life, that you've already built your life on other things, you can't go and untangle that. I want to tell you that there's no mistake that's made, there's no sin too great, there's no issue uh, that you might have that's too much for God to handle. In fact, I want to tell you that he specializes in cases like yours. And I'm living proof of that. I am living proof. There is no case too hard for him. This is the gospel that he has engraved you on the palms of his hands. As Christians, that image means even more to us when we think about Jesus on the cross, that he literally engraved you on the palms of his hands. That when he was nailed to the cross, you were on his mind. He didn't act without thinking of you. That he engraved your name on the palms of his hands so that you could be connected to one another and connected to God in a way that you could never be before Jesus. That he engraved you on the palms of his hands so that you could have the Holy Spirit inside you to comfort you and to guide you as you go through your pain and through exile. That he engraved his name, your name on his palms so that this, whatever you're experiencing now, is not the end of your story. That the end of our story is actually one of peace and unspeakable joy in eternity. Wherever you are today, it's not the end for you because of Jesus. That's the gospel, that God cannot forget you, and he proved it on the cross. Amen? I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And I want you to think about where you are in exile today. Where is your place of exile? I've been in exile in many foreign lands. I've been in exile in depression. I've been in exile in post-traumatic stress disorder. I've been in exile in many foreign lands. And I don't know what the foreign land is for you today. It could be that your foreign land is, uh, is health issues, that your, your health is, is, you're struggling with your health your foreign land could be that you're parenting in a stage of life where you're feeling like lost. You could, your foreign land could be that you're in a job transition. You don't know where your career is going. You don't know what's next for you. Your foreign land could be you're entering a new season of life. Maybe you're retiring. Maybe you're entering motherhood. Maybe you're getting some bad news that you were not expecting, that you can't have children. And motherhood is a painful topic right now, or fatherhood is a painful topic. I don't know where your land of exile is right now, but I do want to give you a moment to think about that and know that wherever you're at, God sees you. He sees the tears. He sees the grief. And you're not forgotten. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
standing here Not knowing how we'll get through this test But holding on to faith you know best Nothing can catch you by surprise You've got this figured out Watching us now But when it looks as if we can win You wrap us in your arms and step in And everything we need you supply You've got this in control And now we know that Cause the walls to fall With your 
have to tell you before I dismiss you that Israel eventually got out of exile. They were led back into the land. They, the Messiah came from them just as was predicted. God's plans were not interrupted. They kept going. And I want to tell you wherever you are in exile, that God sees you, that no tear goes out without his notice, that there is no moment he misses, that there's no time where he doesn't see or recognize your face or know your name. You are not forgotten. And even when those moments come where you feel like you're in exile again, we hold on to his promises because they are good and true. There was a time when, even after I got saved, where I had to withdraw, the, the, the weight of grief fell on me all at once. I had to withdraw from school, spend time in counseling. I was in exile again, but God's promises are true and real, and Pete is with you. So I'm gonna just bless you before we dismiss and remind you before I do that uh, there will be prayer teams on my left, your right, and communion will be offered here on, the, on my right, your left if you wish to take that to recall that you are not alone. Lord, thank you for your promises. Even when we are in exile, even when we're in pain or whether we're in joy, God, you are there, you are present, you see. May you know that your God sees you. May you know that his promises to you are real. May you know that this is not the end of your story, that the end of your story is one of overwhelming joy at the throne as we worship the Lamb in eternity. I bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord, just...